I realized I screwed up Bumblebee FF. I, I can't say it. All right. So anyway. That's okay. Hey, bum, bum, say, it, say it three times fast. Bumblebee. Bumblebee FF. Bumble, Bumblebee FF. Bumblebee FF. Right. I There's your opening banter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're pleased to be joined in the studio this week by a special guest. Although, Laurel, at this point, you're not really a guest. Laurel Deppen is GeekWire's 2021 Dow Jones News Fund intern. She's been reporting for GeekWire for the past couple months here mm-hmm. in Seattle. Laurel studied broadcast journalism at Western Kentucky University, where she was editor-in-chief of the College Heights Herald. And you go also <laughs> go tops. What What's are the tops? tops? Oh, well, our mascot is uh, a hilltopper. Oh, so cool. we Very. say go tops. Yes. He is essentially like a Sesame Street character. That's how he looks. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been here through the Dow Jones News Fund, but you also had two minors, right? What did you what did you minor in? I minored in journalism, writing and political science. Awesome. Well, you've been covering everything from startups to Zillow to earnings to what it's like to be in Seattle. And so in the second segment, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience and really your impressions on Seattle and the tech scene. I think both John and I are eager to get well, some- Well, not only the tech scene, the culture. <laughs> yes. And the Seattle freeze. Exactly. And everything else <laughs> going on here. That's great. So it's great to have you here, Laurel. And we should say, you are a broadcast journalism specialist, which means that not only are you doing reporting, but you have been focusing in part on audio and radio. So I hope it's not too much to say. And you can edit this out later if you want, because <laughs> Laurel's going to edit this episode as one of the capstone exercises of her internship here at GeekWire. So excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, John, I wanted to talk first a little bit about just the crazy threads and subplots that we've had recently in some of the mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, companies in Seattle, longtime startups that we've covered that are now public, and some underlying drama that's been happening with some of those. But the first one that really popped to mind was a, was a company that you covered early in your tenure as a GeekWire intern, Laurel, and that was Leafly. They announced this past week that they're going to be going public through an IPO this is essentially a marijuana database. Database, right? It talks about strains and shops, and this is essentially a clearinghouse for information about cannabis. I guess would be the euphemism that people would say. Pot would be the word that we would have used in Chico, where I grew up. <laughs> Not grass. No, the grass was a little more '60s, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> so, what were your impressions, either of you, when you saw this week that? Leafly would be going public. Yeah, and we should say they're going public by via a SPAC, which is the popular way, one of the popular ways to go public here more recently. So we should just add that as a little bit of a tidbit. And that's a special purpose acquisition company, which is the latest trend in the markets where a company goes public initially on some thesis, raises a ton of money, and then buys another company and essentially takes that other company public through that process. Yes, also called blank check companies or shell companies. What were your thoughts? I was surprised, first off, that society has reached a point where a company like Leafly is legitimate enough to be considered worthy of the public markets. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, this gets into a broader discussion about 
what life is like in Seattle versus Western Kentucky University where you went, Laurel. <laughs> but I mean, were you surprised that a cannabis-oriented company is going public? And I would love to hear your compare and contrast just about kind of the cannabis market here in Seattle versus your own experience in Kentucky. Right. Well, I think the most obvious thing to say is that it's not legal in Kentucky. <laughs> uh, so seeing this many like pot shops, as the locals call them, on every on every, every corner. corner. It was was a little surprising, but it, it is kind of a stereotype of the West in general, like having like access, easy access to pot, I would say. Um, but I think that it didn't really surprise me that it's going public because like the cannabis market has just like grown and expanded, you know, as like more states are legalizing, whether like recreationally or um, medically. And I think that in 2020, when so many people were shut down, like Leafly saw a lot of growth. No well, yeah, intended. everybody was smoking pot because <laughs> they were the just holed up in their house <laughs> watching <laughs> Netflix, man. That's all that you could do. <laughs> Right. I mean, it was the ultimate stoners pandemic, I guess, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there is a massive market forming around cannabis. And I was talking to an entrepreneur and venture capitalist last week at an event. One of the entrepreneurs had recently been in the cannabis business. Now, it didn't work out very well for him. But his takeaway point was it's the wild, wild west. And there's going to be massive amounts of money made in cannabis in the next five or 10 years. And there are companies like Leafly that are going to try to capitalize on this big trend. And I think we are headed towards wasn't there was a debate that there was federal legislation that were a federal mandate that cannabis and pot was going to be legal, legal. So it seems like we're headed in that direction with as many states that have now legalized. So if you head back to Kentucky, <laughs> as much as we want you to stay here in Seattle, if you head back there, I would guess in the next three years, it's legal there. Will, and it's a good growing climate, right? It is, you yeah, know, because be tobacco. be good for the industry there. Yes. They're, now, they're, the they're bourbon part. folks might not like it. Yeah, lots of more competition, More competition, yeah. yeah. For inebriation, yeah. Or maybe they just get into the business. You know, Jim Beam is, you know, growing, <laughs> growing pot. Exactly. Well, once your economy is based on rolling something up and smoking it, you might as well just expand into the other stuff, I guess is what you're trying to say. All right. Well, so, John, this is a company that we've covered – almost since its inception. In fact, didn't you, was this one of those where you dug something up in a filing early on? This is ringing a bell. That rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, that rings a bell. And uh, they, they were part of privateer holdings, if I'm remembering this correctly. So what does this say about the IPO market? I mean, that this company is going public. Well, it's robust and hot and on fire, and there's tons of M&A activity going on. There's uh, a lot of public offerings. There's a lot of venture money flowing. I mean, just the amount of money flowing into startups and in the private sector, it's just incredible. We've never seen as much money flowing as we have uh, to this day. And so that's the big thing. And so it's fueling all these different types of activities, whether it's a SPAC or an IPO or an acquisition. And I don't know, it seems like it will be coming to an end at some point because it just can't be this much on fire for this long. I mean, all these cycles have ups and downs. Um, but what's interesting when you look at the different types of companies that are either going public or via SPAC or IPO, just the diversity of companies. So here we've got a cannabis-oriented marketplace. I mean, we had Rover, which is an online pet sitting marketplace. We had Nautilus Biotechnology, which is doing really creative, innovative things in the biotechnology arena. 
all go public via SPAC. So it does speak to um, the diversity of the economy. And then we should say via the more traditional IPOs, uh, a company that went public this past week, Elium Therapeutics, which uh, is doing research very early stage. They only have 25 employees and they're going public, raising $80 million. So um, so you're seeing even earlier stage companies. This is a company that's three years old. So it's pretty unusual to see a company that's three years old with 25 employees already publicly traded. Um, so that's interesting to see as well. So what's the difference between now and the dot-com bubble in that regard? Is it merely the valuations that they're not going public at these crazy valuations, assuming future profits? A lot of the dot-com era companies were just ideas on the back of napkins, really, at the end of the day. In many of these instances, I mean, Leafly is a real business. They have customers and revenue. Now, on the biotech side, of course, many of those are just in the early stage research and development. Biotech and life sciences is a whole other creature when it comes to how they're raising money and their product lifestyle, their their product life cycle and whatnot. So, but we have seen what's an interesting trend here in Washington State, and that plays out nationally is the number of biotech-oriented IPOs and SPACs that we've seen. I think we're at about nine in the past 12 months. Companies like Sana Biotechnology, Athera Pharma, and that's a, that's a lot. Pre, prior to that, there's only been, I think, one public offering from uh, a Seattle-area biotech in the previous like four or five years. So that's really an interesting trend to watch. Laurel, I know you've been covering the startup market and startup companies to some extent. Uh, were there particular trends that stood out among the Seattle startup scene that really struck you as you were covering some of these companies? You know, there's a startup for everything, and that's, <laughs> that, that is what that is what I have learned most. <laughs> that's really funny because at this same event I was at with this venture capitalist talking about it because he was asking my my feelings on whether things were overheating or not. And of course, I'm more of a cynic and pessimist and the venture capitalist like, oh, yeah, we're funding all these things. And I was like, are there real? I mean, I don't know how many unicorn companies there are, which are these billion dollar privately held market cap companies. You know, they're over a thousand. I mean, we should find out how many, but there's like 2000 of these. Are there really two? This was my point to him. Are there really 2000 problems that are need solved sure. in our planet right now that are that that need, that need that sort of <laughs> skill. And so that's why my point. I was like, but what you're saying, yeah, there is a startup for everything. I mean, heck, we had a story this week by Kurt Schlosser on the site about a company that's trying to take on the funeral industry with new types of caskets and how they're selling caskets. So, John, you mentioned Rover earlier. I love the Rover story, the big picture Rover story, and it's for something. Laurel, that you unfortunately were not able to experience, I don't think, here during your internship. And that was, it was born in a hackathon. It was essentially a startup weekend hackathon where Greg Gottesman, a Seattle area investor now with Pioneer Square Labs and Pioneer Square Ventures, I believe, he pitched this idea that was essentially a place for Rover initially. And it was, I think, modeled in name after a place for mom, mom. Which, yes which was, was a place for mom was a company that uh, essentially helped uh, people in their 50s and 60s that were dealing with their elderly parents trying to get into assisted living facilities and it helped match them to a proper one for their uh, aging parents 
But I went back and actually Greg posted on Facebook his original pitch, the YouTube video of his Startup Weekend pitch, you know, some 10 years ago. I mean, going back. And were you there to cover this Yes, one? I was there. I have the one of the original photos of the team standing there with their hands out like little <laughs> paws, <laughs> acting like they're dogs. But the thing I love about this and the thing that's so fun to experience when you do this long enough is that it that was just literally an idea. Now, granted, it was an idea from someone who had lots of connections and lots of money and lots of institutional willpower behind him. And I think that's different. And I don't think that that has been as equitable uh, across gender and race as it should been, as it should be. But here you have the simple power of an idea leading to a company that's actually getting pretty close to profitability, you know, in their latest earnings report, which they came out with just about a week after going public, they were, you know, within two million of being profitable on a quarterly basis. Yeah. And the crazy thing with this company is that it was it, it it got hit, as you can imagine, about as hard as any company during COVID, because what happened during COVID, everyone shut off their travel, everyone stayed at home and started taking care of their dog and walking their dog. And so the need for Rover to match you up with a pet sitter or a pet walker just completely declined. And they even have said they just saw their revenue and their customer base just almost come to a grinding halt. So the fact that they've come back and now you're starting to see it tick up, if you can weather a downturn like that and get through this period, which they have, they can be really well positioned to take advantage of the market because it's knocked out competitors and they can kind of consolidate where they're at. They're, they're, they're a very sharp group of people running that company. Well, and Laurel, this gets into something we were talking about earlier, just about journalism and all that. But I, I think that one of the coolest things about all these companies going public is that suddenly they have to make disclosures to the Securities and Exchange Commission, to investors. And along those lines regarding Rover, John, you, I've got to credit you with spotting this. I ended up picking up the story and writing it. But you saw a little note in one of their filings by Rover that said, oh, yeah, by the way, we're paying back the $8 million paycheck protection program loan that we got back in the day that got us through the downturn. And it was really interesting what they had to say. They were able to use that money as cushion in the bank, not literally, but effectively as peace of mind. They did make quite a few layoffs, but that money being in the bank helped them get through because it allowed them to take risks, essentially, that they might not have otherwise done. Yeah. And there were a lot of tech companies that raised PPP loans or got PPP loans that you could argue whether they should have or not. I think Rover was one that deserved it because their business basically stopped and they had to cut a big part of their workforce. And so what's interesting here, though, is the number of these companies have come out of COVID in a positive way and where they stand now. And now they're feeling an obligation of, oh, we took this loan and now we're going to pay it back because there's no obligation that you have to. You can get forgiveness on these loans that basically right. it's becomes essentially free money to you. But we've seen, Todd, I don't, you wrote the story. I mean, there's a handful of these companies that have now given the money back or, or paid the money back, even though they may not have had to. That's right. So we talked with ExtraHop, uh, the security company in the Seattle region that was just acquired in a $900 million deal by two private equity companies. They received $10 million through the PPP program back in the day, and they're paying that back in full as well. Now, did anyone respond to you about whether it was they felt an obligation to do it 
because of the business or shareholder or just because they felt the negative repercussions of it? Like, what was the rationale for doing it? The rationale was this money was useful to us. We didn't spend it or we didn't need it ultimately. And we felt it was the right thing to do now. Did they feel that way because there was a reporter calling and and asking about it? The funny backstory on this, Todd, (laughs) is because when I saw that PPP section of the Rover filing, and then there was some other news story or something I saw, I I just, I said, Todd, I think you remember me saying, I said, my spidey sense is saying somebody else is digging around on this because we're seeing other companies that are making these declarations at this point. Extra Hop made a point of telling me that their plan and the process of paying back their $10 million loan was in the works for quite a while, even though it happened to close on the same day that I contacted them. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I mean, this is not the kind of thing that you would do on a whim, I assume, at that scale. I don't think even we at our relatively small scale could turn so quickly on a dime as to pay back a PPP loan just because we got a call from a reporter. Yes. We should point out GeekWire did get a small amount of PPP loans, just in full disclosure, nothing like on the level of these companies. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. And we have gotten forgiveness on one of them, but it did help us get through a very difficult period. Yeah. I mean, our business, as you know, uh, often relies on events and we haven't been able to hold our large scale uh, events as we have in the, in the past. And unfortunately, you know, a month ago, we were feeling great about coming out of where where we were, and now we're looking at things with the Delta variant, and we're not certain how the fall's going to look. So it's, as we've been saying on the events team, we've got plan B, C, and D in motion. All right. Well, that is a quick look at some of the M&A deals, the different money that's flowing around, and how it's bringing some of these longtime Seattle startups out into much more public view. And It's fascinating to watch and cover, and I can't wait to see who goes public next. Coming up, we will catch up with our summer intern, Laurel Deppen, to get her perspective on the Seattle tech community and Seattle as a culture, looking at it with fresh eyes coming from Kentucky. We'll talk about that next, coming up on GeekWire. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We're joined here in the GeekWire studio this week by Laurel Deppen. She is GeekWire's 2021 Dow Jones News Fund intern. Dow Jones News Fund is a great program that instructs and educates young journalists in the art and science of business and tech reporting. Perfect. (laughs) And Laurel is our second Dow Jones News Fund intern. Uh, We've also had a, a great intern a couple summers ago. Caitlin Wong, who joined us and is now, I believe, working for CNN. So yeah, this is this is what happens. Yeah, just a launching pad to you know places of comparable size to GeekWire. <laughs> <laughs> so Laurel, John, and I have been here for more than twenty years each. So at this point, like we look around and this is all very normal to us. But for somebody coming in with fresh eyes, it's really interesting to hear what their perspective is. Tell us what your experience was like coming to Seattle and how it compared to where you've been before. What your overall big picture takeaways about this place? Well, um, essentially, like the stereotypes of Seattle, like from where I'm, I'm from in Kentucky, is like, oh, it rains a lot there. Everybody's stuck in the 90s. Lots of grunge music. 
Uh, and then, of course, a lot of pot. A lot we of already, pot. We already yes, covered that. yes. Yeah. The stereotypes yeah. <laughs> of a pot shop on every corner. Um, so then I get here, and you know, we have this heat dome, and we have like a drought. So it has barely rained at all the entire time I've been here. Um, but I was kind of expecting that '90s grunge um, aesthetic. But I think what I saw was more closer to like Silicon Valley because of. Like, I, I, of course, have not been to California, so I can't really say anything about that. But what the stereotype is of, like, a city that is completely filled with tech. Now, I know one of your first assignments was going to the Amazon campus with Taylor Soper, our managing editor. Did that experience shape your impression in that way? Because I will say the Amazon campus does feel to me like Silicon Valley, granted in an urban setting versus suburban, like a lot of the offices in Palo Alto or Menlo Park. But I could see where that would inform an impression like that. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, I've been aware of uh, the stereotypes of the tech industry. I, this is a really silly movie. It came out in like 2013. I don't know if you've seen um, starring Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn. It's called The Internship, yes. where they're interns at Google. Yes. So that kind of was my first impression of like a tech company stereotype. I can see that. And that's where... I need to watch this. I think it's I think it's been recommended to me in my feed, but I need to see this now. I, yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it. You definitely it. need to. Okay. It's, like, it's, it's funny and especially... Well, I'll get my flannel on. I'll smoke a joint and watch the internship. <laughs> so then you have both stereotypes. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, right. You need to follow that up with singles, right? Which yeah, is that's the, right. the classic Seattle yeah. movie. Um, but that is interesting in part because we've seen this influx of Silicon Valley Engineering centers, as John likes to say, it's one of the three fundamental stories that we've covered over the past decade in, in Seattle at GeekWire, the other being the rebirth of Microsoft and the rise of Amazon. I think that's one sign that that trend and the influx of those companies and those engineering centers is influencing the culture here. Now, you saw it in the architecture and kind of the surroundings. Did you also pick up at, pick up on that? difference from what was originally in your mind as the original stereotype in the people you were meeting? Definitely. Yes. Like if, you know, on a weekend I was going to like a, a restaurant or a bar, I bet at least at least half of the people there were in Seattle because of tech, one of the big tech companies. And then this ties into like a big story that we've covered in the transformation of Seattle into this tech epicenter. And the economic disparity mm. and maybe you can speak to that and how what you, what was your perceptions of that based on coming from Western Kentucky University well it was very noticeable um, because it's it's kind of hard to not notice it like as an outsider because like you see all of these like developments and there's more people coming to Seattle to fill in these jobs um, and so I just like couldn't help but ask myself you know like where are the people who already live here? Like, where are they going? Like, with the cost of living being so high. Yeah. Do we pay you enough to live here? <laughs> uh, yeah. The, okay. da the Dow Jones News Fund uh, also helps me. Okay, live here. good. I was just, how's that for a hardball question there right in the middle? Yeah. There you go. I and, mean, and, that, and I also got to well, promote least... the Dow Jones News Fund for <laughs> helping me with this opportunity. Yes, let's mention it four more times on this podcast. So, um, <laughs> well, because that is well, we an do issue. pay our interns. You we know, do. a lot of places don't do that. Right, right. And that is important to do. And I think it actually, though, speaks to one of the challenges that Seattle has. I think you see the economic disparity not only in people who are, are struggling to make a living 
living, but also people who are struggling to build their careers. And and well, yeah, I think that's a good point, Ty, because when we came here in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, it was a place that a lot of young people were coming. And as part of that, there was a vibrant music scene, art scene. You can even throw the tech scene into that, that like that young talent needs to come in to kind of refresh a place. So you have, you know, to use the parlance of, uh, you know, tech and business speak, you know, you got to have some bench strength. Uh, And that bench strength is that next generation. And if that pipeline gets cut off, or it's simply 24-year-old Facebook engineers making $250,000 a year, it, it does really disrupt the place. Laurel, not to put you on the spot here, but what was your favorite story of your internship? You wrote some experiential stories. Yeah, you stories. probably had, yes. I mean, 30-plus stories. At least. And, yeah, mm-hmm. that's I, I had, haven't. had I've, a good run here. I've had enough stories that I don't count how many stories I've there had, you so go. I, I'm I not like sure, that. yes. Um, I have to say, and maybe I'm maybe I'm just biased because this was a story where I wrote about my own personal experience, and um, I did have a lot of fun using Bumble BFF to make friends um, because there is this stereotype of Seattle, and I hadn't heard of it before um, before I moved out here. But there's uh, the Seattle freeze, as I'm sure you all are. Oh yes, aware We're of it very well. Yes, very well aware. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, you know, I'm an extroverted person. I love being social. I love meeting new people. So the idea of the Seattle freeze was kind of a nightmare. Um, but I, uh, I started a profile on Bumble BFF, and that's that was pretty much like my starting point of building a social group here. And it turned out really well, and I've had a lot of great experiences because of it. You wrote a great story about this, and for the un- uninitiated, Bumble is a dating platform, but Bumble BFF, as the acronym might suggest, is where you go out and you seek friends, people to do things with, new people to meet, not romantic interests. Mm -hmm. So technology is melting the Seattle freeze. Yes. Here's my question about Bumble BFF being a a man in his late 40s who's never experienced any of these (laughs) new technologies. Did you run into guys or women on that platform who were not actually looking for BFFs? I did not. Every like pretty much everyone that I met was there because they were new to the area, lots of transplants here in Seattle, and they were also experiencing kind of that that uh, Seattle freeze issue. So everyone was looking to have a friend to go hiking with, have brunch with. That was the stereotype. Everyone said they either wanted to go hiking or go to brunch. So were you able to develop lasting friendships through that? I definitely think so. Yeah, of course, like we're all still friends because we're all here and here in Seattle. So time will tell. But I liked them a lot. (laughs) Were the folks on there mostly from the tech industry or were they doing other types of things in Seattle? When I was reading the profiles, I kind of looked for people who were here because they were here for an internship um, so that we could have that kind of commonality. Um, but there were a lot of tech people that I became friends with, um, someone who works at Twitter, someone who works at Micron, um, and also people who don't work in the tech industry, like in finance, and one's a teacher. I got to say, you know, I, I love this. I, it's great that you're developing a, a good social life here. I have to say, if I was starting out as a reporter here, I would have done exactly what you were doing, probably for a different reason. <laughs> and that would have been source development, <laughs> because there's nothing like, John, and you know this, playing soccer with somebody. Uh, you know, Jay Green, the former Seattle Times reporter who's now at the Washington Post, his big thing was hockey. He played 
in a Microsoft hockey league. And dang it, if Jay didn't get every dang scoop <laughs> because of that. Well, so, I'm picking up tennis and I'm starting to play <laughs> tennis with some of the, the technology well, folks. So if anybody wants to, you know, do a tennis date, we can go to the old, and we're not going on Bumblebee, Bumble, at, bum, we're not going on Bumble BFF. You can just come see me. Yeah. John well, at GeekWire.com. Now everybody you play tennis with is going to think that you're just no, interested no. in playing tennis. No, I like just playing tennis and hanging out with people. But if I, you know, get added benefits of a story out <laughs> of it, that's fine. I got to say, some <laughs> of the, my best story ideas, and I have to be careful about this too, but have come from the elementary school playground and the sidelines of a kid's soccer match. Because to your point, there are so many people here at all ages involved in the tech industry. It's just everywhere. So Laurel, tell me this. If there were one thing you could change about Seattle as a community, what would it be after your, how, how, how long have you been here? Three months? It's been about three months. About three yeah. months. Okay. So that's enough to get to know a place. Well, you know, I think that the city has made a bunch of, uh, like, positive rules in regards to, like, you know, caring about the environment more. Like, there's, like, you know, this, um, the city where I went to college in, like, they don't even have recycling. So, like, coming here and seeing that there's recycling and composting, that's really, really great. And, like, also you have to pay a fee if you want to use a bag at a grocery store. Um, So I think that all of those programs are really good. I saw, well, I saw this tweet that, um, so of course it's a tweet about someone's experience, so I don't know if this actually happened, Um, but in this tweet, someone said that they observed a woman giving um, plastic water bottles to, like, the homeless population during the um, heat dome, and apparently someone said to her, seriously, plastic? So she was criticized because of her lack, because of her lack of consciousness about the environment because she was trying to help a person make sure that he or she had enough water to get through the heat dump. Yeah, I think there can be misaligned priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's what you're getting into here. Um, I think Seattle is very progressive when it comes to the environment and, and thinking through those issues. And those are obviously going to be extremely important issues as we move into the next several years and decades. Hopefully we're still here. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think we have some immediate needs in the homelessness crisis that we have been facing for years that aren't getting taken advantage, that that aren't getting solved as quickly as they need to be, certainly. And to bring this full circle, do you remember Glenn Kelman's comments, the Redfin CEO on On our podcast last last week. week, he brought up the fact that with a thousand headquarters, essentially, with all of his employees and other employees, essentially working from wherever they want throughout the country. It's giving him less local capital, effectively, to apply to these issues, and it's causing him to think twice when the city council comes to him or city leaders come to him and say, "Hey, Glenn, this tax that you supported in the past, that much of the rest of the tech industry didn't pass, didn't support, we're going to bring it back." When they come to him and say, hey, we're going to bring back this tax that you supported, Glenn, and others in the tech industry didn't, it's harder for him to muster the local presence that he needs to basically be able to support that. So I I think it's a real issue that you're bringing up here. Whether or not that story is apocryphal, uh, I think it's the kind of thing that speaks to a larger truth. And um, I think it's a good observation 
priorities. It's like, yes, we need to save the world, but first let's look around and save the rest of us first. Make sure there's people here to enjoy the fruits of our future environmental renaissance. Yeah, and the big question as it relates to the community that we cover and specifically focusing in on business and technology is just the giant economic disparity that has occurred Mm. in the last 10 years. And that gets into taxing, that gets into infrastructure, that gets into so many different issues. Uh, And yeah, that's not even touching the climate change discussion Mm -hmm. in a big way, but like we need to solve those problems quickly. All right, Laurel, thank you. Congrats on the successful completion almost of your internship. And I will link to... One more week. You can still screw it up. (laughs) One more week. (laughs) We will link to a variety of your stories from the show notes and from the associated post on GeekWire with this podcast, but especially the Bumble BFF story. I I learned a lot from that one. So (laughs) glad you did that. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Don't go, though, because we're bringing back a favorite GeekWire segment. Coming up next, it's the Random Channel. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. All right, welcome back. It is time for the random channel, that moment of the week when we talk about some of the random items that were occupying attention or causing some buzz in the virtual GeekWire newsroom. It's Todd Bishop. I'm here with John Cook, GeekWire's co-founder, and Laurel Deppin, our GeekWire 2021 Dow Jones News Fund intern. So we thought we'd talk about some of the shows or podcasts, things that we've been watching or listening to lately that have really struck a chord. Laurel, do you want to start? Sure. Um, So... I had seen on my Twitter feed a lot of discourse about this show on HBO called The White Lotus. Mm. Um, and the tweet that convinced me to watch it was when they said it is just as good as Succession. And Succession is one of my favorite shows um, that I've seen in a really long time. So I was like, well, I just absolutely have to watch this show then. I love Succession. And I just saw a promo on HBO that it's coming back for a third it season. It is, yes. And it's- the promo looked fantastic. I'm so excited. The media mogul says to his son, I'm going to like grind your bones yes, up and make yeah. bread out of it. <laughs> and then the son like has no retort. He like tries to, he like tries to respond like, oh, I'm going to do this to you, daddy. And it sounds really meek. But that, anyway. Succession I, was the one that was loosely based on the Murdochs, yes, right? Yes, yes. It's all media moguls and infighting. And so. So the White Lotus. Yeah. Yes. I, it, you know, I hate to say it, but it is not as good as Succession. Um, but I will say it has held my attention. There's going to be six episodes. Five have been released, so I've watched all five. Um, it's basically about this resort in Hawaii, and it follows the lives of, you know, these people in this week. Um, and, you know, they're just all very, very unlikable people. Um, well, that's very much like Succession. Yes, yeah. yeah. But I do like the characters in Succession more than I like the characters on White Lotus, I will say that. Okay. Well, I've seen <laughs> it advertised a lot, and I, I've been thinking about it, yeah, so I might give it a shot. It's okay. Everyone just makes me kind of nervous. Like, it's supposed to be funny, but for some reason it's presented in such a way that it's just, like, nerve-wracking. Which service is it on? HBO Max. Okay, HBO Max. 
That's my problem. Like everything's on something else. There was oh. back in the day we were all looking for a la carte. We're like, oh yeah, we're gonna cut our cable bill in half. I swear to God, I'm paying twice as much <laughs> as I did. So much money. More. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. Yes. All right. Okay. White Lotus. Good one. All right. I will. Well, I don't have HBO Max. I'll wait till <laughs> I'll it comes. I'll give you up. my password. No, don't do that. That's. Oh. <laughs> can you have multiple users, friends, I don't and family? Know. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Your family. Your family. What's yours? So I got tipped off to a new podcast. Um, that just sounded wonderful to me. As many of you know, I'm kind of a sports nut. Um, and so the podcast is called The Edge. Now, it's all about a sport that I don't pay that much attention to, baseball. But the underlying premise of it is so interesting. It's the story of the Houston Astros and how horrible they were back in the early part of the 2010s. They were losing over 100 games. And this Sports Illustrated reporter did a story like analyzing – They got to embed himself with the team and did a story I think that year uh, and a cover story that said, welcome to your world champions 2017 Houston Astros. And he kind of got laughed off the – you know, laughed out of the ballpark like, oh, no way. The Houston Astros suck. Well, this is the team that ended up winning the World Series in 2017. Now, the reason I really like this, and it was recommended by a local technology executive who, who I very much respect, um, the reason I really liked it and why he pointed out to me was because there's this great journalistic element to it that this Sports Illustrated reporter really struggles with his story after the fact because those who follow sports know that the Houston Astros was the team that even though they won the World Series with this stacked lineup, they were cheating the whole time through this system of banging a drum, basically stealing signals. And they would bang the drum a certain way if it was an off-speed pitch. And I don't think they would bang the drum if it was a fastball. And so these guys were just hammering the ball out of the park and just destroying teams. And so the edge is the story of this journalist kind of coming to terms with his reporting that he missed this big story that was right in front of him and, and kind of figuring out why. But I'll just give a little tease on the first episode. The re- it, it just starts out in such an unpredictable and interesting way. He, this reporter, Sports Illustrated reporter, goes back. He doesn't start it with the Astros. He doesn't start it with, like, the management team. doesn't start it with his own perspective. He starts it with a pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays who faced off against this lineup and was like a mid-level, mid-tier pitcher. And he got shelled by the Astros in a game. And after that game, the manager came in and and sent him down to the minor leagues. And then eventually he got like transferred over to the league in Japan and his career was over. Because of their cheating or well, that's I, the I guess if he struck out yeah. three of the players, maybe his career would have been different. Yeah. But like it, it's just such an interesting way to tell a story. So the edge, the story of the Houston Astros and their cheating scandal. Nice. All right. Well, the one that I'm gonna talk about this podcast host does not need my help promoting her work, but I do want to give a shout out to Sway, the New York Times podcast with Kara Swisher. And the reason is, and I will say, I've kind of been on Kara overload over the years. I listened to Pivot, her podcast with Scott Galloway. Kara Swisher is a longtime technology journalist, uh, founder of Recode, co-founder with Walt Mossberg. And um, so when Sway came around her new New York Times podcast, I was like, okay, I'm just I ignored it. I like I've enough, enough already. 
And I have to say, just in the past couple of weeks, I've really started listening, and, and she's got some great recent guests, especially. Uh, Michael Pollan, the future of food guy, and sort of his whole move into psychedelics and drugs and the impact of all these other kinds of plants. Um, and uh, the a great interview with Ken Burns, asking Ken Burns if he really should be on PBS all that much, that kind of thing. But her interview with the American Airlines CEO, which granted is not exactly the celebrity kind of subject that you would have on some of these other episodes, but was a masterclass in research and asking the right questions and being tough but fair. And I actually flagged it in our yeah. internal channels. It yeah, it was great. Punchy questions. Punchy had done her homework. Obviously, I know she's got a team of multiple. As we do here oh, sure. in the Geek Wire studio. <laughs> That's right. How many folks do we have in the booth next door? Six or seven producing uh, they must this? be out to lunch. Okay. <laughs> All right, Laurel. No, we're just throwing it on Laurel to do this <laughs> week. The yes, intern, absolutely. The intern gets to edit the podcast this week. That's great. Well, Laurel, thank you for taking on the editing duties this week. It's much appreciated. And thanks for spending your summer here with us at GeekWire. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. We will link from the show notes to Laurel Deppen's work and to all of the stories that we talked about on this week's show. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com. Our show is edited this week by Laurel Deppen. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.